Warning, the Catholic Man Show is about to begin. If you're looking for a dull, feel-good religion, or clap your hands, sit around the campfire kumbaya, you've come to the wrong place. We are dealing with toxic levels of authentic masculinity. I would say good luck, but luck is for pagans. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side. So raise your glass. A little late. That's all right. It's, it's this morning. It's oh, morning wait. time. Yeah. Uh, you got to give us a little bit of a break. Don't typically record in the morning time. Uh, I'm Adam Minahan, sitting here with David Niles. We have Juan on the buttons. We have uh, our white chocolate porter, Jimbo Baggins, at the door. And we have a special guest this evening, or this, see, I say this <laughs> evening because we're so used to recording yeah. in the evening. This yeah. is the morning Maybe time. people are listening to us in the evening. That, mm. that could be, yes. On the radio, they will be. Yes, but maybe not podcast. I don't yeah. know. We'll see. We won't see, actually. No, we won't. Um, but we have <laughs> a special guest, Swan Sono, with us this, uh, today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, so you have a, a podcast, Intellectual Conservatism. You're from Kansas. About to finish up your philosophy degree, mm-hmm. have some special plans after your, hopefully after your uh, graduation. Yeah, that's right. What else What else you got? What I else? mean, I think you basically covered all the bases. I mean, aside from the fact that I'm a Baptist convert to Catholicism, um, you know, I've appeared on Caption Christianity, Pints with Aquinas, Gospel Simplicity, lots of other channels. And I guess one of my passions is sharing my journey to Catholicism and just why the Catholic Church is good, true, and beautiful. Yeah, so you gave a talk last night for some people here in the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma. It was just incredible. Uh, If you're looking for someone to deliver just a beautiful message, Mm -hmm. uh, it was very inspiring. Like I said, when I uh, right after your talk, that really during your talk, I was just real overcome with gratitude for having, for being Catholic, you know, for having been raised in the church, um, just for the gift that Christ has given us in His church. Mm -hmm. It means like. What a gift. So if you want somebody to come and deliver a great talk, look up Swan Sona. Yeah. Uh, because he he's, great. He's, he's your man. That's what he I'm just great. saying. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, my uh, brother-in-law sent me a text message. He was there last night. Holden was there. And yeah. he sent me a text message on the way home and said how, how, how good of a job you did. And uh, really, really enjoyed it. So Yeah, I really appreciate it. I mean, and you know, like when I, when I, when I do talks, right, and let's say that you know, I forget to pray at the start of the talk. Like, things just don't work as well. But when I started with that prayer and I just kind of felt the Holy Spirit, I was like, okay, I'm ready to share my story. And so, you know, I want to give thanks to God, and I just really appreciate how, you know, people in the church have received me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. One thing that you brought up uh, last night that I thought was very interesting um, is this idea of what conservatism is. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and so you have a podcast, Intellectual Conservatism, Um and I wanted to ask you, because I was thinking about it after afterwards, do you think conservatism as a political movement would be uh, more appropriately named preservatism? I mean, you know, you could call that if you want to. I, I don't know why it just ended up being conservatism, um, uh-huh. probably because of just how, you know, the tradition has progressed and we just decided to go with the C rather than the P, you know, but um, you can call it whatever you want, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Because when I think about conserving something, 
uh, I don't think, you know, it's like, oh, you want to, cons- if you have a tank of gas and you're trying <laughs> to conserve the tank of gas, you yeah. st- you're still ultimately using it up, mm. right? You mm. know, whereas if you're preserving something, you know, you don't conserve uh, a piece of art. Yeah. You preserve it. You know, you keep mm. it to pass it down <laughs> so that it's it's not, nothing is d- taken away from it, right? The, yeah. All of the beauty you want to give to the next people so i just was making me think about like yeah although when you said preservatism i thought about like preservative foods or you know right, something like sure. that so like it didn't hit me with the right image right. <laughs> like jams yeah <laughs> but yeah you just did a great job uh uh make sure to everybody go check out intellectual conservatism mm-hmm. uh because Really, that opened my eyes. I'd never even thought about. I think about the word conservatism, sort of mm-hmm. like what you said about how oh that hits you the wrong way. Mm. I've always thought about it as like oh, being conservatives are cautious. Yeah, you know they are um, not you know kind of the opposite of ag- aggressive. You know of risky, but actually just that idea of like oh conservatives seek to conserve the true. You know like all right, maintain traditions. Mm-hmm. Like oh yeah, I do that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was eye-opening for me. Yeah, I mean, and I think one shocking thing for a lot of people is that, like, conservatism, when they really, like, understand what it is, and not just, like, you know, what they see on YouTube or on popular social media platforms, but they, like, read the philosophy or they try to understand it, I think they start realizing that, like, conservatism comes very naturally to us. Like, if you find something good or beautiful, like, you have a memory or someone that you love, right, you try to do things to make sure that they flourish you try to make sure that you conserve their memory, right, and things like that. And so, I mean, it's very natural for us to form traditions and form communities around those traditions. Yeah, yeah. So it's like everybody is really a conservative, yeah. at least <laughs> on many things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, if you, if you establish, like, let's say, a country, right, and you have a constitution and then you have a legal structure, or let's say you pass a law, right, it, regardless of if the law is like, you know, good or bad, but let's say you support it, then you try to do things to conserve it, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, some people object, well, conservatism like that doesn't seem really substantive. Like, you know, you could have it. You, what, it so the question really is like, what are you conserving? Right. Right. And that's what makes conservatism distinct, because it's very much rooted in the natural law tradition, mm-hmm. very compatible with like the moral and social teaching of the Catholic Church. So is there a distinction? I know this is not what we're talking about today, but I just have I have questions. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference, would you say, between the philosophy of conservatism and the political movement of conservatism? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, oftentimes people talk about how the political conservative movement is like reactionary, right? So typically it's, um, you know, as you mentioned, like aggressive, it's responding to something. It typically becomes like libertarianism right. and strays away from like the the conservative roots, which are, you know, like conservatives don't view authority as a necessary evil. Uh, they view it as a good, mm-hmm. and it's a good that can either be abused or can be used towards the flourishing of the common good, right? And so right. even conservatives, they aren't afraid to talk about the common good because we share a common human nature. Mm-hmm. You know, we were designed by God towards certain goods like family, religion, beauty and these sorts of things. Right, because I could see even a progressive saying, well, I'm a conservative. Like, if that's what you mean, I'm a conservative. You know, like, take their opinion of marriage. They might say that that is the the true, the good, and the beautiful. I mean, Mm -hmm. they would be wrong in in saying that. But um, so they would say, I'm trying to conserve this truth that I have found, and that's why I'm doing the things. You know what I mean? So, like, Mm -hmm. um, I think really everybody does that, yeah. uh, you know, if you find something good, mm-hmm. you want to help it to flourish. Right. And I think like in the Western context, 
like you know people have been trying to figure out like you know what are we trying to conserve in the west like what is western civilization you know yeah. um do we define it by let's say us fighting the east right well that's been problematic hasn't worked out really well um is conservatism like a particular nation state i mean i think you know country is a part of it but uh the fundamental core of western civilization really is like the greco uh, the Judeo-Christian inheritance that we've all shared. Uh -huh. um, and so part of my journey into the Catholic Church and <laughs> into my own political development was actually finding out that at the bottom of my conservatism, because I converted first to conservatism before Catholicism, was that the Catholic Church was actually at the bottom the whole time, and I finally got to the, you know, the, 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 the bedrock. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's a good like segue into what we are going to be talking about today, because we are we're talking about a, a very specific uh, tradition, preserving uh, tradition. I also liked how you how you said last night that uh, th th this idea involves a lot of prudence. Yeah. You know, th you know mm -hmm. this is what th like if we're establishing new things, is it prudent to be established? What's the end? You know, in my, what's the what's the telos of what we're trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. um, and 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 using prudence to exercise what how we how we go about that. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, but we're so so today we're going to be talking about the papacy. We're going to talking about um, the magisterium, um, the differences. Uh, maybe we should, should start off. We we have a little bit before uh, our, our first break. Why don't Why don't we start off with some definitions? Like sure. So mm -hmm. pa uh, papacy involves infallibility, which is a hot button term, especially for Protestants. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think a lot of times misunderstood even for Catholics. Uh, so what do we mean by infallibility? Papal infallibility. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, let me just begin in general with the magisterium, right? So the magisterium comes from the Latin word magister, and it just means like teacher. And so the Catholic Church has this teaching body composed of the bishops and, you know, at the top, the Bishop of Rome. Um, and so the magisterium <laughs> has this teaching capacity. And, you know, when we talk about infallibility, what we're talking about is a very specific moment or way in which the magisterium is teaching, right? So I know we're going to talk about this later, but the different degrees of authority. But like when the magisterium lays down like um, an irreformable definition of some doctrine on faith and morals, when it's saying like this is what we believe, right? And we're and it's saying like this is not subject to further debate. This isn't subject to further question. This is what we believe on faith and morals. Then you have what comes in as the gift of infallibility, where God ensures that His church is not definitively bound to error, but is bound to truth. Right, and it's a negative power, not a positive power. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, the Pope summons his infallible powers and, you know, like uh, all of a sudden has the answer to predestination or, you know, all these other questions. It's, it's that, you know, when the magisterium does, you know, moved by the Holy Spirit, make that final call, it won't be wrong. Right, so it's not, it doesn't say that, oh, the, the, mag, the magisterium has expressed this truth in the fullest way or in the most beautiful way, um, which is why you, you can still see development of doctrine over mm -hmm. time of infallible, infallibly declared things. Um, they don't change, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, it's a negative thing that the Pope will not error in his speech, mm -hmm. right? And so he could have said it very poorly, sure. perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's, there's nothing wrong, there's no error in it, and so it's still infallible. Uh, but doesn't mean that it was perfect, you know? Because um, the church is run by humans, you know, uh, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm, I have never met a perfect human uh, in my life. I mean, never met Mary yet. <laughs> 
We'll I back. hope I hope to. Mm-hmm. We'll be back. Hey guys, David Niles here. For those of you who don't know, for my day job, I'm a financial advisor. So I know firsthand how difficult investing can be. That's why I was so excited when we met Mark Lozano, founder and owner of Christ Centered Capital. Mark's mission is to provide in-depth research and analysis on which companies and organizations align with Christian values and which ones don't. Of course, he's also seeking to provide investment recommendations and stock picks that have financial potential and are also aligned with Christian values. What I really love about what Mark is doing is that he's completely transparent about why a company might be a moral investment versus another one. He leaves it up to you so that you can make informed decisions. He's not just going to say, oh, this one's moral, this one's not. He'll give all of the reasons in the research that he's done with links to articles or whatever it may be, so that you can make the most informed decisions on your own investment portfolios. Because as Catholics, we have a duty to uphold Catholic values, and the same goes with our investments. So we want to be as virtuous as we can be, and Christ-centered capital is really invaluable. It's only $7 a month for you to go and sign up to get all of his recommendations and all of his research. To me, it's a no-brainer. If you're an investor and you want more information, go to ChristCenteredCapital.com and make sure to use promo code TCMS. 2022 for one month of free access, no obligation. That's TCMS, The Catholic Man Show, TCMS 2022. Welcome back to The Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles, here with Adam Minahan, our special guest, Swan Sona, everybody. So, Swan, uh... What are you going to do after college? Well, so I'm right now in the process of applying to the Dominican order, the central province. So we'll see how that goes. And nice. You know, if the Lord decides that he wants to take me another direction or maybe I got to wait maybe a year, then I'll spend that time, you know, in service to the church, however he sees fit. So I'm just open to seeing what the Lord wants right now. What an exciting moment in life. Like, <laughs> just I, I'm so excited for you. Like, what an adventure. To have, yeah. to have like, well, I don't know. We'll see what the Lord does. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to be great, though, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, like at first it's kind of like terrifying, but yeah. then you start realizing that once you're like abandoned to the providence and grace of God, it's actually pretty freeing. Totally. Because you know? it's like, it's not about me trying to figure out the future. It's not me like making my destiny. It's mm-hmm. like me just being the best Catholic that I can be. And then from there, God will put the pieces together. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so resting. You know, yeah. like people who mm-hmm. don't have faith. I cannot just, we were talking about this, oh, not too long ago, that it's like, I don't, I don't know how you'd like finish the day. You know, you have <laughs> to be exhausting. Yeah, stressed the whole time. If you think everything's up to you, like, yeah. ugh, that's not for me. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, so before the break, we were talking about, you know, kind of defining some terms, defining infallibility. Um, so yeah, when we're at, we're saying that it's more of a negative aspect, negative mm. uh, understanding. So, but there are, there are specific things that the Pope cannot speak infallibly about right yeah mm-hmm. so what what can he speak infallibly about what can he not yeah so once again you know we're dealing with um, doctrines concerning faith and morals and specifically like those things in the apostolic deposit of the faith right so the apostles they handed down traditions and they handed us obviously sacred scripture um, and we can you know discern the sacred tradition through the church fathers and what they have received from the apostles and have consistently preached throughout history now, so for instance, the Pope can't add, let's say, oh, by the way, like, I don't know, Jesus had like a third arm or Jesus was, I don't know, five foot ten. Like, that's not something that really pertains to faith. It's not really relevant. And also, like, it's never been really a concern in the apostolic deposit and what we've received in the tradition of the sure. church, right? But like something like, let's say, the Assumption of Mary, 
the Immaculate Conception. That's something that I think is taught in Scripture, but also we receive through the fathers consistently throughout the centuries. And so the Pope can, let's say, you know, make a dogmatic definition, ex cathedra, that is from the chair, and say this is what we believe as Catholics and, you know, bind the whole church to that forever. Um, but, you know, like, you know, take, for instance, like, you, you know, what, what's the most beautiful kind of music, right? Uh, that really doesn't per- pertain to faith and morals. So the Pope's not, the Pope can't be like, you know, Radiohead is my favorite band or I don't know, some other thing, right? Um, but, the, you know, the Pope can talk about morality. So take um, Humanae Vitae and the concerns about contraception or even things that are related to, um, you know, the death penalty and, and elsewhere. So the Pope can speak on faith and morals. And the same is true of the magisterium. It's mm-hmm. only in these areas that they have that gift. Yeah, so yeah. there are other other ways that infallibility is is wielded. Uh, it's not the Pope is what everybody typically thinks about yeah. having. Mm-hmm. So who who are the other groups or like ways that things can be declared infallibly? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, you know the Pope declaring something ex cathedra mm-hmm. right from the chair of Saint Peter. But there's no formula for that, correct? I think that's something that's interesting that mm. people think. That if he does X, well, Y, and people Z, people seem to argue about that. Like, he, <laughs> right. either the Pope needs to say, like, yeah. because like very often formula, they, they will say, "I infallibly declare." You right. Know? right. Yeah. 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 And that sure is, I will say, that's helpful. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But but you know, that, but that gets a little bit of yeah. gray, correct? Yeah. Well, you know, so Vatican One lays out like seven conditions for what counts as an ex cathedra ruling, but I think you know they can basically be broken down into that. You know, the Pope is teaching on faith and morals. He intends for this to be, in, you know, to be taught definitively. Um, he's calling upon the Holy Spirit, and he's calling upon his own chair and authority as the universal pastor, mm-hmm. right? And so, I mean, you know, you have two instances of this. Um, you have, um, you know, I think it was Pius IX on the Immaculate Conception. Yeah. And then you have Pius Twelfth in the 1950s talking about the Assumption of Mary, mm-hmm. right? But, I mean, like, even the First Vatican Council cited, like, Pope Agatho, Right. When he had definitively taught that the veneration of icons is orthodox. Right. And other things that are related to that. So um, the pope has exercised that ex cathedra authority multiple times throughout history. Now, it is nice if we have the straight, clear formula. And, and there are theologians today still debating, like, how many times exactly. Right. Has the pope has used, used? ex cathedra power? Yeah. Um, a good scholar to look at is John Joy on this particular issue. Okay. But, uh, David, to go to your question about the magisterium. Right. Uh-huh. Um so when it comes to infallibility, obviously there's the Pope, and then there's an ecumenical council. And so the ecumenical council, that is the bishops of the world gathered together um, in union with the Pope, mm-hmm. right? If they teach on not a disciplinary matter, so maybe there's, there's like a local church dispute and they, uh, the magisterium comes up with a solution for a local church problem. Like let's just say Germany. Right, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hypothetically speaking, <laughs> making something up. Right. Then, I mean, that isn't going to be like infallible, right? But let's say that they are going to, they teach something as universal, a divinely revealed dogma, mm-hmm. and maybe it's applied to a local church, but they intend for it to be applied to the whole church, right? Yeah. Then uh, the Pope will ratify the canons of the ecumenical council and be like, yes, I agree that this is, you know, universal, this is infallible you know, ecumenical being the whole church, right? This is something that we definitively believe. Yeah, sort of um, like the Council of Nicaea, you know, sure, when they're going to yeah. get together and say, what do we believe? Or when they get together to refute a, her- uh, a heresy, you know, those are... But in order, first of all, for it to be a legitimate council, it has to be in union with the Pope. Yeah. There have been mm-hmm. count. There have been attempted councils in the past that did not 
they weren't legitimate because they didn't have the papal authority behind them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what about the fathers? Do they? Do the fathers of the church wield have the opportunity? Yeah. So this is so so individual church fathers. You know, like privately exegeting scriptures, they don't have the gift of infallibility, mm-hmm. right? Unless let's say we're talking about a pope who has declared something ex cathedra, that would be a unique situation of a father sure. right, being yeah. infallible. But what, what's typically uh, referred to in this area is like the universal ordinary magisterium. And so what this basically means, like, so I'll, I'll, let me just break down the categories, right? So that you got the extraordinary magisterium, which is when the ecumenical council or the pope declares something ex cathedra, right? And so this is like really nice, neat, clear. Then you have the ordinary magisterium, which is just like when the pope writes an encyclical or when the magisterium is just like, you know, the bishops are saying something in general, right? But they're not necessarily like putting their foot down and being like, this is what you absolutely have to believe, right? Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, the pope and the bishops being just, just private theologians, and then you have the universal ordinary magisterium, which is this idea that what the fathers had preached consistently throughout history, what the bishops around the world have consistently preached, um, this is usually infallible. I mean, so some people say, like, it's always infallible. Some say it's usually infallible. Um, but, I mean, to give an example, like, even before the Assumption of Mary was declared a dogma by Pius Twelfth, it was already a doctrine in the church. That is, it was already a belief that we held, mm-hmm. but it just like, it didn't have that final seal of approval from the magisterium, right? right? But I mean, it was part of the liturgy. It's part of the early tradition. It was consistently preached by the fathers, especially the Syriac fathers, right? And so um, the universal ordinary magisterium can become part of the extraordinary magisterium. So, okay, but there, there are instances where it seems like that, the church fathers all agree on something in unison for yeah. a long, long time, and then all of a sudden we we say, "Nope, that's not that's not the case yeah. any, any mm-hmm. longer." That's why I, I have a hard time of understanding when do we exercise this uh, principle and when do we not? Yeah, because mm-hmm. it seems like, uh, yep, this is a principle that you can exercise up until we decide, nope, you no longer can 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 exercise that principle. Yeah, we decide no, no longer. Um, so how do you how do you <laughs> how do you know how do you know when uh, all the church fathers in unison agree on something, so it is uh, a doctrine of the church until it's just not. Yeah, I mean, so and this is this is a big question, especially like um, you know debates on let's say young earth creationism or debates on like geocentrism, right? I mean, so or the, or death, the, or penalty. the death penalty or the right? death penalty, yeah. right? So, um, I mean, with respect to these, uh, you know, these are obviously really big, complicated subjects. I think the first thing I'm just going to say is that it's still an ongoing debate on when exactly we can defi- uh, identify the universal ordinary magisterium. I mean, mm-hmm. so for instance, take like um, when John Pope St. John Paul II talked about how, you know, the church just simply doesn't have the power to ordain women, right, uh, to the priesthood. Yeah. I mean, this is not something that he had to infallibly define or, um, you know, declare ex cathedra because it was already part of the universal ordinary magisterium. It was just like taken for granted in the church. Like, yeah, that's just a simple fact of how the priesthood and holy orders function. Um but, you know, so some what some people will say is, like, certain things like, let's say, geocentrism. Like, um, some people say, like, the church fathers didn't consistently teach that. Or some people say, maybe it's not really a matter of faith. Maybe this was more like their scientific views that you were intersecting into Scripture, and those scientific views are open to, you know, further criticism. And then when it comes to, like, things like young earth creationism, right, that's also, like, a huge topic right now in the Catholic Church, and especially, like, my friend Gideon Lazar, the Byzantine Scotus, like, he's been going on Pints of the Aquinas and other channels talking about it, right? So, you know, there's some people who think, like, well, um, well, you have to discern, 
right? I mean, the magistrate is going to tell you that, look, it, when we don't infallibly declare something and give the final seal of approval, you know, it's still the obligation of the faithful to discern well and wisely, right? Sure. And so, like, if you're going to go against the consensus of the fathers, you need, like, a pretty good reason, right? <laughs> um, I think that, right. it's wise. But, I mean, the last thing I'll just say is, like, you know, with the death penalty, right? I mean... From my understanding, like, you know, Pope Francis and, you know, even the other post-conciliar popes, like what they've said is that um, it's not that the death penalty is intrinsically immoral. And I think that, you know, some theologians have debated, like, could the pope actually say that it's intrinsically immoral? Um, And I think the consensus largely is like, no, he can't do that. Right. Because it's part of the tradition. It was something administered in the Old Testament under divine decree. Right. So, I mean, that's something that's just there. But what Pope Francis and other popes have talked about is just like the concern about like, you know, the social environment. Sure. Or even like, you know, when like, you know, when we want a criminal to die and the society is just like, yeah, kill him. It's like, okay, well, what's the impact of that? Is that the holy thing to do? Yeah. Like, what's the impact of that on the rest of the society? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, these are the things that, um, you know, we would have to look at. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So, uh, when we get back, I'd like to talk about maybe like the levels of authority that the magisterium has, like especially when they release documents yeah. and things like mm-hmm. that, because that gets confusing for me um, on what level of authority that these papal bulls are. Like, do we have to believe those? Like, you know. Anyway, so we'll get back and we'll talk about that with Swanson. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Adam Minahan, and this is David Niles from the Catholic Man Show. And we are so excited because we are going on pilgrimage to Ireland. We're going this September, September 15th through the 24th. We're going to go to some amazing Catholic places in the country. As you know, the Catholic tradition in Ireland is so deep and rich. And while we're there, we're also going to be visiting some distilleries, if you can even imagine that, you know, us, the Catholic Man Show. So we're going on basically a (laughs) cathedral and distillery pilgrimage to Ireland. It's going to be awesome. And, and because we're going on a, a distillery tours that are not typical for the tourists, Dave, we're not taking a bunch of people. We're not taking 60 people. We're not taking 50 people. We're capping this off at 30 people because we want to be able to That's have it. We're, we want it to be intimate. We want it to be able to uh, go to places that normal tourists don't get a chance to go to. Uh, so go to selectinternationaltours.com slash Catholic Man Show for more information. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. Here with Swan Sona. This podcast, Intellectual Conservatism. Go check it out on all podcast platforms and YouTube, Facebook. Uh, in between breaks, El Producer Juan Posada brought up a good point to us before we jump into levels of authority. He said that um, we didn't really discuss what is technically the magisterium, like what what is it made up of, who... Who forms the magisterium? Yeah. Am it, I a member of the magisterium? <laughs> like, do I get a say? So maybe we should maybe we should break that down before we go into the levels of authority. Yeah. Okay. So um, the magisterium is really a collection of persons, right, that are guided by the Holy Spirit, and they have this institutional authorization. So it's not like the magisterium is a definite building, or it's like it's only in Rome, right, and like nowhere else. Like, for instance, count you had different councils that were around the world. Right, that, uh, that are ecumenical, that are binding on the whole church, and have discussed like particular issues. Right, so mm-hmm. uh, the magisterium consists of bishops, and then especially you know those bishops united to the bishop of Rome. All right, so th- those are who those are who are strictly part of the magisterium. Now, this doesn't mean 
that like as lay people we absolutely have nothing to say or like you know the, the bishops are just like <laughs> who cares what like what my sheep think right no like they, that's not how it works right so for instance like when the when Pius the twelfth was going to declare you know the assumption of Mary mm-hmm. and this is actually a rule that's set forward in Vatican one so you know Vatican one sets this rule that when like when the Pope declares something ex cathedra he has a moral obligation to consult his brother bishops. So it's not like he's just, you know, willy-nilly waking up one morning and saying, hey, I'm going to bind everybody to this, right? As as a good pastor, as a good shepherd, he should have the prudence to also consult his brothers, right? And so Pius XII, he asked his brother bishops, hey, is this what we believe? And uh, the brother bishops, they sent, uh, I think, like polls or something to uh, bishops and their, uh, uh, you know, uh, to other bishops and to other priests, right, and to the laity. And eventually, you know, it was like the unanimous consent of the church. Yes, this is what we believe, and this is what we have believed throughout the centuries. And then Pius XII was like, all right, then I give it my seal of approval. Yeah. So is this what he means whenever he's talking about, uh, well, in Humana Vitae, when he says, like, the authority through the magisterium uh, regarding um, Humana Vitae? Like, he he actually mentions in in the document Mm -hmm. himself through the magisterium. So is that what he means by that? Um, well, I think in that particular context, I mean, he's just saying that he's exercising his own magisterial authority right. and he's a part of it. Right. Because yeah. the Pope also gets his authority through the magisterial. I mean, it's part of his teaching office. Yeah. That he, why he has that authority. Right. Like right. he is the head of that, of that body. Right. right. And the body of the church. So would he yeah. have the, uh, so he sends out all this, you know, all these mm. polls, so, so the, to speak. The first among equals or... Yeah, I mean, so this is going to open that up. Kidding. You're going to open that up? <laughs> but so does he have the right? So he, he sends out all these polls, he brings it all back. The consensus is not what he thinks it should be. So he has the authority to just say, nope, we're going to take that aside and still go with not X, but Y. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, and, and because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit and God's divine providence protecting his church, let's say the Pope, um, you know, maybe like the church is split 50 50, right? And the Pope says, you know what? I think I'm being led by the Holy Spirit to make this dogmatic definition, like, for instance, the universal mediation of Mary and grace, mm-hmm. right? Then, I mean, and, and, if no, and if the Holy Spirit doesn't stop him, if nobody stops him, right, then that becomes dogma, sure. right? He has that authority. I mean, and even if there isn't consensus, I think he can still do it. I mean, there would have been times where mm-hmm. if the Pope surveyed the bishops, is Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity? That a majority of bishops were Arian. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. would have said, no, he yeah. is not the image, but... That wouldn't have mattered. He could still mm-hmm. have come out and then said, well, I infallibly declare. Yeah, and I mean, I think the important thing, too, is, you know, and this is something that, like, uh, people emphasize about Vatican I, and especially, like, uh, Bishop Gasser wrote the Relatio explaining the it's the official interpretation of Vatican I approved by the Council itself, mm-hmm. that the, the Bishop of Rome is never going to be the only Orthodox bishop. Right. So it's never going to be like the Pope, the head versus the entire body. Right. Yeah. God is going to preserve at least some kind of remnant among the bishops of the world, the orthodoxy that the Pope proclaims. And I do think it's prudential, uh, that whole surveying, because if the Pope is unaware that, oh, wow, most people like, well, that gives him the opportunity to now be more pastoral in the way he declares it. And Mm -hmm. maybe some of the implementations surrounding, you know, uh, maybe he'll do more or less other things, you know, do the declaration or whatever it may be, yeah. but then implement other things in conjunction with it, maybe new disciplines, mm-hmm. you know, to help 
guide the people towards that truth that he's infallibly declared. And, you know, sometimes our, our Orthodox brothers and sisters, what they'll say is, well, if the Pope's infallible, then why have ecumenical councils? Why have the bishops, right? I mean, and the reason why that the Pope just doesn't declare everything ex cathedra on his, you know, on his own uh, all the time, the reason why is because, you know, part of that pastoral prudence that you were talking about, right? Like, you know, it, sometimes the Pope has to step in and declare something ex cathedra. That is in his authority and his divine right given by Christ. Um, but other times, you know, the Pope wants to ensure that he has, let's say, the soft power or the support of the bishops around the world. And so it's really effective, for instance, if like a bishop at an ecumenical council signs their name on the documents and says, yes, I believe and profess what this council teaches. And then when that bishop later starts like preaching something else, you're like, hey, wait a minute, you signed yeah. the dotted line. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it is sometimes pastorally smart to not always just declare something ex cathedra, even though you can. Right. Yeah. There's still like an element of mm. politics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, within, I mean, if you get, anytime you have a big organization, there's going to be political things because we are people and yeah. you mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. you can't get politics out of things that have people in it. Right. I mean, and as Aristotle said, right, man's a political animal. So we right. are naturally social. We naturally form institutions. We naturally make traditions, you know, these types of things. Yeah, Jesus was political. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is what we mean also by like the papal supremacy. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We didn't really touch on that. Uh, but that's that that's the the, the difference in infallibility versus supremacy. Correct. Yeah. I mean, so infallibility just concerns like the truth value of what the pope teaches. Right. But then when we get to um, the question of supremacy. Right. Supremacy concerns the jurisdiction of the pope. And so. You know, uh, in, in Ludwig Ott's book, The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, he explains that the Pope has an immediate, ordinary, universal Episcopal jurisdiction. Okay, so Episcopal, obviously, because it's related to the church, right? Um, when it comes to, like, immediate, what that means is that the Pope doesn't have to, like, go through a council to get the approval to do something, right? He is the successor of St. Peter. St. Peter had the power to lead the church. I mean, you know, we can use multiple examples from Scripture where Peter exercises this great authority. And so the Pope doesn't, like, depend upon a council for his authority, right? Um, it's ordinary in the sense that um, it's not just in emergency circumstances, right? It's, like, something that he has given to him by Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it's universal in that it's not just bound to the Diocese of Rome, but if the Pope needs to settle something for the whole church or in a particular church, he can do that. Which we see very early in church history. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, yeah, like <laughs> almost immediately, you know, we have the Bishop of Rome within like the first hundred years settling matters in other dioceses, in other countries, you know, mm -hmm. where they appeal to him as the final say. So he's like, that's not an, you know, I think that's a criticism that, well, you, you, you made that up later. It's like, well, no, it was like, that's just the way it was. Yeah. I mean, so you, you know, see Peter doing it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I've written an article on Catholic answers. I hope it's published soon about like Acts chapter 15, where you see like in the early church, Peter definitely takes the dominant leading role. He's guiding the church. He baptizes Cornelius. He gives the speech at Pentecost. Like the, the I mean, the, I mean Wait, hold on. My, my headphone just said recharging. Sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll get we'll, you. We'll, we'll get you some. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you see Peter, you know, making these great feats of authority, right? And so what I'd argue is that the church, I mean, there are times where there are questions about how do we reconcile the authority of Rome with the other churches, right? Because here's the thing. Um, and I remember I debated Father Patrick Ramsey, who's a great Orthodox monk. And, um, you know, he was saying, like, you know, Swan, but, like, look, aren't we all the body of Christ? Every bishop is the vicar of Christ in his diocese. And so 
it seems as if what you're saying is, is that he's less the body of Christ or this church is less the body of Christ. And I realized that, you know, this was a concern for the early Christians, like figuring out how do we um, balance this authority or how do we understand it, right, as as things go on. And so I just say two things. I mean, the first is that, yes, we are all the body of Christ. Every bishop, right, has that valid authority. I mean, even Vatican I is very clear that they are not usurping the authority of bishops. Pastor Eternus, I think it's paragraph five, talks about how we're not saying that bishops don't have any authority over their diocese, right? Um, but we're saying that this is something good for the church, that the Pope would have this universal jurisdiction. Um, and then, uh, you know, the second thing that I was going to mention with respect to uh, the authority of the Bishop of Rome is that, um, you know, as I said, this is something that Peter exercises. It's something that you see the early popes exercising. And then eventually, like when you look at the body of Christ, right, like, for instance, if you attack my hand, you've attacked me, you've attacked my body. Right. Yeah. And so it's like it's not like my hand is any less my body, but there is something unique about my head. Like if you attack my head, then you could probably take out the whole person. Right. A very central part of my thought and consciousness and who I am, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Pope has been called the caput of the church, the head of the church. He's the vicar of Christ in a very unique, universal way. And so this is what distinguishes him without impugning the status, the validity of other bishops. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, because uh, that has been a that has been a big source of contention mm-hmm. throughout. I mean, and it's still like one of the major division between us and our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. you know, and one day... We pray that, that that we will have unity again. Yeah. Um, because this really just it's come down to just a couple issues. I think the filioque way, the whole and the spirit thing yeah. in the in the creed has been mostly overcome. And I think I don't know. Is that your sense that there would be unity on that point? Like at this. Yeah, I mean, so a good friend for the of, most part. You yeah, know? a good friend of mine, Eric Ybarra, he's written a book recently on the filioque way, and I think he's basically argued that. Um, look, there are some definite structural differences between how we conceive of the Trinity and how, you know, the East conceives of the Trinity. I mean, that doesn't mean that we, you know, like the East doesn't deny the Trinity, sure. the procession of the persons and how that all works out, that, that there's a difference there. Mm-hmm. But what Eric argues, I think, and I'm hoping I'm representing him properly, is that he thinks that, look, we can, we should at least be united on the Trinity. And then the rest, we can just say, hey, we just have a difference of talking about how the procession works. Excellent, excellent. Awesome. Well, we, into the, uh, in the middle of the break, we'll get you some new headphones All right, for cool. you. Yes. <laughs> uh, we're here with Swan Sona. This is the Catholic Man Show. We have uh, one more segment on the radio, and then you can check us out on the podcast. We'll be right back. More than 60,000 men from around the world have journeyed through Exodus 90 together with their brothers. Priests, bishops, singled men, married men, Catholics, non-Catholics alike. One of the things we love receiving are emails from guys who signed up to do Exodus 90 through the Catholic Command Show and let us know how much freedom they've experienced once they go through the program. And it makes sense, right? Here's how it works. And these are the things that we talk about all the time on the Catholic Command Show, which is why we love promoting Exodus 90. They have three pillars, the, a pillar of prayer, a pillar of asceticism, and a, a pillar of fraternity. And through those three pillars, they help men grow closer to Christ, to their spouse, to their children, and to their friends. Closer to that man that God has called them to be. So go check out Exodus 90. They have Exodus 90 Lent as well. It's exodus90.com slash TCMS for the Catholic Man Show. TCMS. 
Thank you to Excess 90 for being a sponsor of The Catholic Man Show. Welcome back to The Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan and Swan Sona. Swan, I think that this is what we're talking about today is papal authority, uh, infallibility. Mm-hmm. It, ultimately, every single question in the Catholic Church between doctrines, between different religions, it always, at the end of the day, comes back to authority. Mm. Every single time. You know, either Christ gave us authority to the Church or he didn't. Yeah. Either the Church can do things that she's done or she can't. And if she can't, then we're all just like, you know, like making up stuff here in fairyland and, you know, like we should all leave the church, right? Because she's probably doing something very bad. But uh, I believe, as is written very plainly in Scripture, that Christ did give his authority to the church. She does wield Christ's authority. Mm. Um, and that's why it's so important that that we talk about this and understand it, because um, that's if you think about Christ giving his divine authority to the church, mm-hmm. like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's sort of like when he told the apostles, like, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Yeah. Whosoever you retain are retained. It's not like, oh, go and proclaim that there is this great forgiveness of sins, you know, like, mm-hmm. shout it from the mountaintop. No, 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 no. It's like, you can, you have the abor- ability to send someone to hell, essentially, you know, like, you could say, no, mm-hmm. I don't forgive you. That's not, you know, like, they should be generous, obviously, and right, use yeah. that authority the right way. But it's just, like, amazing. Mm-hmm. Christ's own authority uh, <laughs> given to the church just plainly, you know? Yeah. You know, I remember in my talk last night, too, I said that the logical conclusion of the incarnation is the Catholic Church. I mean, and the reason why is because, like, in the incarnation, right, you know, God assumes a human nature, right, and he becomes one reality with us. And so, or actually, and we're pulled up to him through Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And so we enter into the divine life of God. And so you and I are sinners, right, on our own power. But through Christ living in us, we are redeemed, we are transformed, regenerated through the sacraments, right, and given powers that on our own we would be helpless, you know, in the power of sin and the clutches of the devil, right? And so the same holds true even in the case of infallibility, right? Because we're not saying that the Pope is just such a smart guy or the bishops are so brilliant that they figured this out on their own. It's that the Holy Spirit and God's own providence has been guiding and helping the church come up with, uh, or, or come to the correct definitions on what is in the apostolic deposit of faith. And so, you know, the in the infallibility that the church has is really the infallibility of Christ that he has shared with himself or shared with well his body, right, the mm-hmm. church. Is it true that papal infallib- infallibility was declared infallibly that at one point, the bishop, the Pope said, like, I do hereby declare infallibly that the Pope has the authority to declare things infallibly. <laughs> and is that funny? It seems like it's yeah. funny. Well, it's interesting because, like, uh, when the Pope declared ex cathedra the Immaculate Conception, that was actually before Vatican I. So he already understood that he had this authority, that it wasn't something given to him by the First Vatican Council. Uh-huh. And even, like, Pope Agatho, or even going as far back as, like, Pope Leo the Great, where, you know, so the, the bishops are like, hey, we just need a letter from you, Pope Leo, and the debate's done, uh-huh. right? Like, there was already an understanding in the church that if the bishop of Rome says it, then it's basically settled. Although, you know, there are disputes with some of the Eastern churches, and there were different times and different 
uh, levels in which like the rest of the church was happily embracing papal authority, right? But um, you know, it wasn't a, a power that like the Pope gave himself. And Vatican I is very clear about this. Right. It's a power that was given immediately and directly to St. Peter mm-hmm. and handed to his successors in Rome. Yeah. But it does. They did do that, right? I, I, well, I mean, like, so, like, they did make it clear in Vatican I, but it was already a thing that they believed right. of themselves. I just think it's funny. <laughs> I do infallibly declare yeah. that I can infallibly declare things. Yep. Like, okay. <laughs> I figured well. that out when you were infallibly declaring things, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the infallible declaration came from Christ first. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's just, like, it's just funny. That, like, you know what? Let's just go infallibly declare Get this out of the way that we can infallibly declare things. It's mm-hmm. like, if you couldn't, could you do it in the first? But you know, it's like, <laughs> isn't there a circle here? <laughs> you know. So what are what are uh, Catholics bound by? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to still be in good, fa- you know, to be in good standings with the Catholic Church. So if uh, good question, you know, the Pope says, you know, uh, X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. uh, but not from X Cathedra. Yeah, are mm-hmm. we still bound by that? So. Right. I mean, so obviously you have to accept whatever is taught in the extraordinary magisterium. That's just been taught infallibly. It's a condition of communion, right, with the Catholic Church. And then when you get to like things like the ordinary and the ordinary universal magisterium, you still owe the magisterium out of respect for its authority, submission of intellect and will. Right. So some Catholics out there believe that, hey, I just need to believe what's infallibly extraordinarily taught. And that's not true. Like if if the Pope like Unless you have a very good, because that would reason. only be like a handful of things. Oh, it would be quite a few things actually. You really? Know, like uh, yeah, like you know Nicaea, like the high. Uh, sure. Okay. You know, yeah, that, that's you know, true. That. Yeah, yeah. But right. um, but uh, you know, like uh, but you still owe respect to the Pope as the successor of Peter. You respect the office, the chair, right? Um, no matter who sits on it. But you are able to disagree. Like so, you know, this is a debate among some theologians, but I think it's fair to see the consensus that like the ordinary magisterium is not infallible. It's authoritative, right? It has authority to it. Um, But you really need a good reason if you disagree with something that the church is teaching, right? Even if it's not teaching it infallibly and dogmatically. So would it be prudent just to not say anything about that? You know, if if the church is saying something, you disagree with it, Mm. um, but you submit to to that, that will, and just like maybe in your heart, just keep that to yourself? Or do we have an obligation Mm. as, uh, you know, the laity to make that known? No, I think, um, I mean, I think you should be vocal, right? If there is something that you have questions about, but you shouldn't do it in a way that's scandalous and you shouldn't do it in a way that implies or, you know, logically leads to something like set of a contism where you reject the authority of the Pope or you reject uh, that the last valid ecumenical council was like, I don't know, pre-schism or something like that. Um, what you want to do is you want to proceed responsibly and carefully, and you want to make sure, like that, you know, like you know, when James St. James in his epistle talks about like how teachers will be judged more harshly. I mean, the moment that you yeah. stand up and you start guiding people and telling them, you're bearing a huge responsibility. And so, you know, please research and be careful if you have a disagreement and don't cause scandal. Yeah, that's. I think that's. Very sage advice. And, that, you know, there could be a real struggle for someone. It's yeah. like if your conscience is really compelling you one way and, you know, mm-hmm. we all have a, a, you know, an obligation to form our conscience yeah. in accordance with the, the teachings of the church. But there certainly have been things that the church has done, not from, uh, you know, a magisterial perspective, but, you know, like excommunicating, uh, who's the dude who, like, 
said about the Earth revolving around the sun. Galileo, Galileo. yeah, you know, and like, it's like, you know, sorry, bro. Mm. You know, well, Galileo was not excommunicated. He was just put under house arrest. He wasn't excommunicated. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure we've excommunicated somebody. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Was like, oh, okay, well, that wasn't so bad. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but even putting him under house arrest, you know, like the mm-hmm. thing is, he was right. <laughs> the Earth does revolve around the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, so the church, because once again, it's, we've got people in it. Yeah. You know, can make mistakes, mm-hmm. and that's why we need. If if we didn't have people in it making mistakes we wouldn't need the holy spirit to step in yeah occasionally uh to offer this gift of infallibility and it is a gift it's not like hey this is something we push on other people it's not mm-hmm. a burden right exactly it, it's a gift that we have received and it's a, a beautiful once again a beautiful gift yeah um that is to really be treasured even though sometimes it can really uh be challenging mm-hmm. um to accept some of the things, you know, it has been throughout history for a lot of people when mm. something was declared, it's like, oh, man, that really kind of rocked my world. Yeah. Um, but ultimately is for our own sanctification. And, you know, this is why I mentioned last night in my talk as well, um, you know, when you want unity in a society or in, you know, a society like the church, you need to have hard power and soft power, right? So you need to have the hard power of an institution that can say, this is what we believe and this is like the official doctrine or rule, and this is for everybody who is under our jurisdiction, right? And then you need the soft power of like the hearts and the minds of the people, like convincing them as well. And I think one of the issues is that, you know, like for instance, in the Protestant tradition, I mean, like it's very much, I think, an emphasis on soft power and just convincing like every individual thinker, right? And then the emphasis on authority is not as great. Whereas I think in the Catholic Church, you have the right balance of both. But you really do need that hard power in the first place. You really do need that institution that can very clearly universally lay out, this is what we believe. But then we also, you know, and especially priests and bishops and popes, they need to do a good job of winning the hearts of the people as well. So mm-hmm. that it's not a burden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, the balance between those two, yeah. you know, it's like sometimes I have days where I like you know, we need more hard power, you know, like, (laughs) we just, you know, we got to like, the church is too soft, you know, people are soft, you know, and Uh like, that kind of comes from that soft power, not, I know that's the same word soft, and I don't mean it in the same way, Mm. but, uh, you know, like, some, some days I think, man, we need more, like, no, this is the way it is, get in the boat, or get out, Uh you know, uh, and... It's like, that's why I'm not in charge. Because <laughs> I think there'd be a lot of people getting out. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's like, wait, no, we want you to stay. <laughs> like, don't get out. I know I said that way back. <laughs> like, but I didn't mean it. You know, like, stay with us. Mm. So it's uh, just such a, it's a prudential thing that, yeah. you know, like, that's why much holier people than myself are called to that office to do that because you have to be you know like think it's easy for us to say that like oh the pope should do this Mm -hmm. until you're actually in the shoes and feel the weight and the burden of like Mm. okay if you do that and uh out of like arrogance or something or Mm -hmm. just like because you want to make people do whatever and people leave the church that's on you yeah Yeah. i mean if, if, if a teacher is judged at a higher standard think about what the pope has got 
mm-hmm. at, at, on Judgment Day. Yeah, I mean, people are scared about, like, you know, the Pope's getting away with the bad things they've done. Oh, no, I think they're going to be judged especially hard by God. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Swan, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We are out of time on the radio. Go to the podcast, catholicmanshow.com, on any podcast platform. We'll continue this conversation for just a little bit longer. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. And cheers to Jesus. Cheers. So I want to get into the... Uh, Hang on. Oh. Uh, we're going on a pilgrimage. Hold on. And we got. I, I just want to mention... We're going on pilgrimage. We're going we're on gonna, a pilgrimage. If, if we're going to talk about this on every episode uh, so get ready. until we go. We're going in September. We're going to Ireland. You you need to come with us. If you sign up, go go to selectinternationaltours.com slash Catholic Man Show for more information. You can see the the itinerary. You can see all the stuff. If you sign up, the first eight people to sign up in the month of March in honor of St. Patrick, uh, you will get a special dinner with Adam and I and... Father Donovan, mm-hmm. good Irish priest. Talked to Father Donovan this week. He's pumped about it. He was oh, like, man. "We're gonna have, we're gonna do a, a whole show on the uh, the history of Catholicism in Ireland, and then we'll talk about each place that we're going to." And I mean, he was. This is why we have him on the show because he just has so much knowledge. Just like I didn't realize you knew all of this. Yeah, yeah, he knows like he knows, so much stuff. He knows things. There's so much yeah. stuff that he knows. But it's gonna be a distillery. And I should put this, I should say cathedral. Catholic Man Show hat. We also have a store. You can go to catholicmanshow.com. Check out our store. Sweatshirt, hat, Mm. shirts. Boom. Um, But it's going to be a cathedral and distillery pilgrimage. Yeah. Cathedral in the morning, distillery in the afternoon. So what else do you want? (laughs) In Ireland. Men and women can come. Correct. It's not just guys. Mm. Okay. So Sorry, I wanted to get that in there. Thank you. Um, so one, one of the questions that I have uh, is I don't understand the levels of authority of papal or, or, or like church writings. Like yeah. there are like mm-hmm. dogmatic constitutions. There's apostolic exhortations. There's papal bulls. Um, the levels of authority for each one they hold different weight. Uh, can you maybe do you can you maybe parse some of that out for us? Yeah, I mean, so you know, this is something I, I like to explore more. But there's like so many like different kinds of documents of the Vatican, or like yeah. you know that the Magistrium can hand out. And so I'll just kind of go into like the ones that we're usually familiar with, right? So like a papal encyclical, um, you know, it has magisterial authority and weight to some extent. Um, but typically, this is just like the private theology, the mind of the Pope coming out, right? So that we can really understand his heart and his own kind of philosophy. But when the popes have like spoken ex cathedra. I mean, sometimes it was like, you know, through a letter, right? So an apostolic constitution, as in the case of Pius IX and Pius XII. Um, But then also you have like letters to councils that are read by legates, right? So you have things like that. Um, I think the biggest giveaway, right, on how much authority that particular document has is just if you read it, how much authority is it claiming that it has, right? And then you look at that, and then you also see to some extent, like, has the church received that? And did the Pope intend for it to be received a certain way, right? And so sometimes I think, like, it's not so much like, hey, what's the document? Um, but it's more like, what are the contents of the document itself and the degree of authority that's being given? Yeah, so, like, what so about then a why, tweet? Well, what but, about it with the Pope tweets something? Well, well but, but, <laughs> what is hold on. So, but then why have different levels of, uh, like, letters? Like, why have mm. apostolic exhortations versus papal bulls versus, yeah. you know, 
if it if it just is, depends on like how he's writing and how much authority he's writing about and how mm. it's received yeah why have why make differences yeah and see look i i you know actually i don't i don't fully uh remember like why there's all these different yeah. versions yeah and different i mean i didn't yeah. i didn't prep audience? you on the, yeah, no, no, i, I sprung yeah. this on you so it's, it's the audience right so like an encyclical is meant mm. for the whole world a papal bull you know like an apostolic exhortation isn't for the faithful it's more for the bishops you know it's like i don't right, know i'm right? asking i mean that's, I'm, I'm that's kind positive. of my what i thought and mm. once again I could be way wrong. I mean, yeah. But it's that's kind of what I had thought that an encyclical is like for the universal church. And as you go down, the mm. different documents are written to a different audience. Yeah, some, probably something like that. You know, like I just know that there are these different kinds of documents, but then like the full context of what's going on always. You know, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot that you know. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a papal bull until <laughs> five, six, seven years ago. You know, yeah. when we start. Diving into that, you realize we wrote a paper bull even on coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Clement, awesome. Clement the Eighth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Supposedly, they uh, there's. I don't think that they can actually. They haven't actually found it, but there is like. They say that he put out a papal bull about it, but they don't have a copy of it. Hmm. So, <laughs> who knows? Okay, I, I like yeah. the idea that he did. Somebody, so, pro- somebody probably spilled his coffee on it. Yeah, spilled the coffee on it. Yeah. Well, that guy one. got fired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, how much does oral tradition or oral pa- passing down oral tradition play into um, infallibility? Play into just the, the the authority of the church? So, again, you know, you just said like we think that he said that you know, that he wrote this papal bull. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just kind of an oral tradition, mm-hmm. small t tradition. I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, so given our belief in the indefectibility of the church as well, so indefectibility is this idea that just in general, God's not going to allow the church to just unanimously go into error or persist in error for an incredibly long period of time such that, you know, everybody basically believes it or it's part of the liturgy or what have you, right? Which is what a lot of Protestants view. I mean, that that they would... Yeah. Like, you know, things went bad probably like immediately after the apostles died or maybe after the second century, like, you know, take your pick on what day or Mm -hmm. time it was. Right. Yeah. But we, and, but as Catholics, we say, no, that's, yeah. that's not right. As Catholics, what, we, we, what we'd say is um, that the, like the, the um, you know, from the very beginning with the apostles being divinely protected, and then the church and the way that it developed and, you know, manifested itself in the world, ultimately, you know, with the predominant view being, you know, Catholicism, right, that was the divine intention, Mm-hmm. Right. And so things went according to plan. Although, you know, you did have heretics, you did have people who broke away, created their own churches or what have you. But, um, the, you know, that that's the narrative that we have, that the church fathers are passing down faithfully the apostolic deposit of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, what was your question? Yeah, about, or, about or oral yeah. tradition, yeah, oral, oral tradition. tradition. Yeah, right. I mean, so yeah, that's a, so that's good. So with, with inde- I, I forgot what it was. Yeah, I'm you're sorry. Good. Yeah, so like with defectibility, you know, like so if there was something that like a pope really definitively taught, mm-hmm. then I mean, God would ensure that we would not lose that, like in the course of history. You know, imagine mm-hmm. like we forget about the assumption. That's not going to happen. You know, the assumption. No. Right. Yeah. I mean, Thanks, or you take what yeah. Moses was writing. Uh, you know, in Genesis. Yeah. Okay, so the creation story, he didn't make it up. Mm-hmm. That was a story that had been passed down orally. You know, it was a part. It was a part of the Jewish tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, so he wasn't just like like oh let me think about a good way. You know, like so. Mm-hmm. Um. He was writing down, and so in some way there was uh, some level of infallibility that God was, you know, uh, 
taking he was taking yeah. care of this oral tradition in his own way, whatever yeah. whatever that was, until it got to the point where he could, it could be written down. Yeah, so like preserving the Pentateuch or preserving the words of the prophets throughout the centuries um, and the transmission of them, whether they whether it was oral or written, mm-hmm. right? And I remember last night somebody asked me a question about like the oral tradition behind the Gospels, you uh-huh. know? And so, um, you know, take for instance what the church fathers say about St. Mark. So St. Mark's Gospel is based off of, according to Eusebius, the preaching ministry of Peter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's some debate in scholarship about whether or not Peter was literate or not. I mean, given that, you know, rural Palestine, the literacy rates weren't really high at all, and Peter was a fisherman, there's some, there's there's quite a bit of debate. Maybe he was minimally literate, right, and maybe he had a scribe uh-huh. help him write his uh, his letters. But, I mean, the basic idea is that, you know, this oral preaching of the apostles, this was the first way that they communicated the gospel, right? And then they later wrote down their accounts, um, you know, with, with St. Luke and St. Matthew and Mark and John, right? Right. And usually, like, when they wrote these Gospels, they were written for a particular audience, right? And so some scholars also believe that when the Gospels were written, um, members of the community were involved and helped the apostle or the Gospel writer, you know, form their account. Because it was written for a particular person with particular interests, and so, you know, that played a part to some extent. Sure, sure. I mean, and even within the Gospels themselves, there's going to be some oral things. For instance, Matthew, he talks about the Passion. Yeah. He wasn't there. You know what I mean? Like, he was getting that from somebody else. I mean, probably yeah. St. John told him, but it's not the Gospel of St. John. Mm-hmm. It's Matthew's Gospel, but he wasn't at the cross. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, like, I understand that's kind of like, you know, if you're trying to... That, that's like a very small amount of oral tradition mm-hmm. in yeah. the gospel. But, you know, you think about, oh, Matthew, he was there. There's no oral tradition in his gospel. Like, well, there might be a little bit, yeah. e- even mm-hmm. in his gospel. Uh, but certainly the letters outside of the gospels, the letters of Paul, the letters right. of James, John, like, they're yeah. writing down these teachings of the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, so, you know, when we look at the book of Galatians and Paul's talking about his catechesis from Peter and James and, um, you know, the other members of the church, um, this was an oral catechesis. He was learning from the words of the apostles, you know, what is the faith and whether or not his understanding of it was correct. And then even Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians 2.15, passing on traditions, whether they're by word of mouth or by letter. And we know, like, you know, during yeah. the time of Jesus, um, you know, you had people who emphasized the written tradition, which predominantly the, the Sadducees, but then the Pharisees also emphasized passing on oral traditions as well. And there was a kind of like dignity to this idea, like the oral Torah, that this was something that um, they had received from Moses, right? Now, there's some debate on the accuracy of the oral Torah, given the fact that it wasn't written down. But I mean, the fact is, is that the New Testament era was a very oral culture, mm-hmm. right? And that's why, like, you know, for us nowadays, like, if we had something really big happen to us, we'd like go to Twitter or make a blog, you know, we'd immediately write it down as soon as we can, put it in our diary. For them, like, they very much would just like, you know, sit in a church, sit in a house, and recollect on a story or a beautiful memory that they had. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can tell you, word for word, my dad's stories. Mm-hmm. You know, Me gro- too. Growing up, I heard, like, he, my dad would tell these stories. And most of them, he told many times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can tell you the exact words. This is how this story goes, word for word. I can even, like, do it mm-hmm. the way he did it. You know what I'm saying? So, like, that's the way things were back then. These stories, you know, they would tell them they were very ceremonial. They'd, you know, tell them every year, you know. Uh, And so I think there's just something beautiful about this concept of teaching your children 
When mm. we instruct our own children, we're, we're our, we are now part of that oral tradition in the church. Um, because, you know, kids, none of us learned, well, you kind of did, by, <laughs> like, reading stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but most of us, most of us, we learn orally uh, all of the things of the faith, mm. right? You know, it's like, how boring would it be to give your seven-year-old, like, all right, we're going to prepare for your first Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. Here's some documents I'd like to you to read and explain them to me. And once you can do that, you can receive Jesus. You know, it's like, no, forget that. That's that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. God made us for this oral tradition. So it's it's sad that that's it's rejected because yeah. it's almost like people are rejecting a part of their own humanity when mm-hmm. you reject oral tradition. Yeah, like, and, you know, and I even mentioned, like, one of the things that really drew me to the Catholic Church is how it is truly Catholic and universal. Like, you know, I sometimes ask myself the question, like, is human nature Protestant or is it Catholic? Right? And then when I look and reflect, and especially given my uh, conversion from liberalism to conservatism, understanding Aristotle and really looking at anthropology, um, what what I found more and more is that it's so natural for us to have rituals, to have sacraments. I mean, these things that look superstitious, they're like, you know, for instance, you know, like, um, you know, prayer beads or what have you. Like, these are like universal things that you find in human cultures and civilizations. Um, and so what I found, especially, you know, given my Asian background, was that Catholicism fits more naturally into my culture. But not just that, like the cultures of human beings throughout the centuries and throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Awesome. I'm good. Are you anything else you want to touch base on? Looks like that our our stream went down. But um, anything else you you have? No, Swan. Thank you so much for being here, man. You're a yeah, gift. Yeah, it was mm. a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, I just realized something too. So um, I know somebody's going to get on me for this later. But Pope Agatho, I don't think he did. I don't think his issue was the veneration of icons. I mix, I'm mixing it with Pope Hadrian in the Count of Nicaea too. You know what? I was going to correct you on that. But yeah. But <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I do apologize. I mix um, that up. <laughs> I've never heard of either of those guys. So. <laughs> I'm just joking anyway. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Go to thecatholicmanshow.com. Go check out uh, Swan's podcast, Intellectual Conservatism, and check out what all he is doing. He has some great guests. You, you just had an awesome um, podcast with Father Joseph uh, Thomas White yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, Gavin Kerr on the Eucharist. Um, so go check that out. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. Hi, this is Bishop David Condorla of the Diocese of Tulsa in Oklahoma. So let us pray. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen.